Good evening. Good to see you all. Um, glad Jeremy prayed for us briefly uh, tonight because I'm hopefully feeling up to it. I'm the last man standing in my family. Uh, Joyce, my wife, went down last night being ill. Uh, Evie and, and Lockie are down as well. So uh, the germs are encroaching. I can feel them. Uh, but hopefully we'll get through tonight and we'll see how we go. Um, this is our fault. We've been out a lot, lots of Christmas things. Um, but do uh, pray with me, for me and for us as we hear God's word again. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we ask that your word would address us, uh, that your spirit would do his work in us, even as we think about uh, what's been left for us, and help me to speak clearly and, and well, and help me to be able to get through, um, uh, help me to be useful uh, in, in speaking to us. Uh, would you use me as your servant? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, every so often when you read and you look at what Jesus has said and done, uh, you'll see him doing something strange. And I'm not talking about the fact that he does uh, miraculous things from time to time, which he does. Sometimes he'll go and do something counterintuitive. Like if you were gathering a movement of people, uh, as Jesus seemed to be doing, if you were uh, getting disciples and, and, and making something happen, you'd want more and more and more people to come and join you, wouldn't you? And yet, uh, well, you see by chapter 14 of Luke, Jesus, we're told, has this massive following. Uh, the start of what we were reading today, we, we see that large crowds, verse 25, large crowds are traveling with Jesus. And when Jesus sees this large crowd of people with him, he seems to purposely deliver teaching in this next section that's designed to thin them out. Not get more disciples, but seems less. Everyone's invited, of course, if you uh, read the previous um, story. It's about how everyone has his invitation to come and, and join him. But if you are going to come and join him, it seems he wants you to know that the bar is high. Commitment level that's required is it's all in. It's all or nothing. There's no having a foot in each camp. There's no just coming along for the ride. If you're going to follow Jesus, he makes explicit in this little bit of teaching that he wants every single part of you. And if you're not going to do that, now might be the time to step off. Uh, this is how serious he wants his disciples to be. If you look at verse 25 again. Um, it says this, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Let's come back to verse 26. It's a challenging kind of verse. Because hate is a, a strong kind of word. Uh, it's hyperbole, I think. It's exaggeration to, to make a point. Many of the godliest Christians I've known aren't hateful in their closest of relationships with their family and with the people around them. Quite the opposite, actually. Being loving to your parents and being loving to your spouse and to your children and siblings is a good thing. But compared to how much you're supposed to love Jesus... Even these closest of relationships, it pales in comparison. We love Jesus so much, it's like we hate everyone else. Because he takes first priority. 
He is the one we listen to. He is the one we are loyal to. And if there's a clash in agendas between uh, what our family might want for us or what Jesus would want for us, then the follower of Jesus follows Jesus. Uh, There are times when following Jesus is not going to make your family happy or the other people in your life happy. There's plenty of stories uh, of parents of international students. Uh, It's nice to see Ash here today. I did a year with the University of New South Wales as a student minister while I was at um, Bible College and I was working with international students mostly who'd uh, come to study in Sydney, mostly from Malaysia and Singapore. And uh, my group in particular, there was a lot of doctors, a lot of uh, medical sort of people coming to do their training, their, their undergrad in medicine here before they go back home to, to work as a, as a doctor of some sort uh, back in Malaysia or Singapore. And this one guy I remember that I met, he was a Christian before he came uh, to Sydney, uh, but it was during his time with the Christian group on campus, uh, which happens to a lot of people. I think they, they come into these groups and it's a time of their life where they're asking serious questions uh, and they get a serious challenge from, as they read the Bible and as people meet up with them. His faith was nurtured in such a big way that it was at this time that he was starting to think, maybe what God wants me to do with the rest of my life is to use it to tell people about Jesus and do that as my job. Uh, This was in second year, which uh, was sort of second out of a five-year degree. And he was convinced at this point that uh, he should look into going into some sort of full-time Christian ministry. But he knew his conservative Asian parents back home, they'd sent him over here and paid a truckload of money, as international students do, for uni fees and accommodation and expenses and other things, uh, with the expectation that by the end of his time in Australia that uh, this man would go home and become, will be on his way to becoming a fully-fledged and respectable doctor, earning the big bucks. And so this guy, he was terrified of being back at home uh, at the end of the year because he knew he had to have that conversation face-to-face with Dad uh, and to say, hey, Dad, I don't want to work as a doctor anymore. Sorry. When I finish my study, I want to spend the rest of my life uh, telling people about Jesus instead. And it hit the fan. It really did when he had that conversation. Why do you hate us, son? He didn't hate them. He just loved Jesus more. But it sure felt like hate and betrayal to to mum and dad. And it's not even just other people who you may have to disappoint. If you notice that bit of detail in verse 26, it's a little bit disturbing actually. Because you have to give up yourself. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross... And follow me cannot be my disciple. Whatever dreams and aspirations that you might have otherwise had for yourself, all your pride, we crucify those things on the way to following Jesus. It's not about being ambitionless, uh, but what Jesus will do is he'll take our ambitions and and our plans and our goals and what we want to do and, and he tends to redirect them. You want to be great? Good. Well, Jesus will redirect what greatness will mean for you. He'll show you a greatness that's about sacrifice and about humility and about service and about taking up your cross. For me, uh, one of my big ambitions in life 
was to be liked by absolutely everybody that I met. It uh, didn't matter who they were, just having their esteem uh, was really important to me. I remember my first year in uni, I was trying to get in with this very cool crowd on the arts side of campus at Sydney Uni. I was a massive dork back then, uh, just like I am now. Slightly less so now, because I wasn't married to Joyce back then, and I am now. She sort of, you get a bit of credibility by association. But I was trying really hard. I remember walking in uh, with my actually cool friend Bella to our next lecture, and she had this nose ring, uh, she had this fair trade hemp bag uh, with this band on it that I'd never heard of before. And she was the kind of girl who could pull that sort of thing off. And we're walking across campus and uh, we walk and we pass one of these um, stalls, I guess you'd call it, run by the Christian group at, at university that I was a part of. And there was this big uh, investigating Christianity thing going on at the time that they were advertising. And she looks at them, rolls her eyes and says, ugh, what's that about? It was the age when, uh, when everyone wanted to advertise anything. You sort of all just get your friends together and wear the same T-shirt. And she's like, well, what's with those T-shirts? What are they doing? And sensing her derision and wanting so desperately to be uh, liked and accepted by her, I said, yeah, I know, right? And she's like, dude, you're wearing one of those T-shirts. <laughs> And she was right. I was. I was so concerned. I cared so much about what she thought. And I wanted to be agreeable, uh, so agreeable that I completely forgot the shirt on my back and the God whose name I professed. But I'm glad I got sprung. Uh, I'm glad I felt the shame of that moment because it helped me see so much more clearly afterwards whose opinion I valued and whose opinion I really should be valuing. It's what Jesus, it's what he thinks of me that counts. He's the one I'm living for. So maybe Jesus is onto something here. It's not that he wants less followers, he wants ones that are actually genuine. Because he knows that being nominal does nothing for you. Having the name but not the substance is pretty empty, a little bit self deceiving. If you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're going to know that you're claiming him having top spot in your life and that following him may well cost you everything. A Christian country is one where Jesus has top spot in his national life. But a nominally Christian country amounts to not very much at all. There are enough people, I think, sitting in houses and shopping centers every Sunday who, if you bow them up and ask them, about religious things, they'll tell you straight up, well, I'm, I'm Church of England, or Orthodox, or, or Catholic. And that fact has no real bearing on any decision they've made in their life, ever, probably. Because it's just a label. And they're just chugging about, doing what they're doing, not engaging at all with what Jesus would ask them to do with their lives. Let's not be like that. And maybe the point and intent of Jesus giving this sort of teaching is not to send lots of people away, but to help them to make some sort of decision point. Sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need someone to draw a line in the sand for us, almost force us to a point, to look us square in the face and ask, are you with me? Or are you not? And we have to choose. 
And it's good for us, I think, at those times, to have a long, hard think about uh, where we stand and where we want to stand. What does it mean to you? And do you know what you're in for? The terms and conditions aren't in some hidden fine print. Jesus says, if you're with me, you're all in. That's what I expect. And those of us who are following and hearing Jesus' words have to work out if that's something we're up for. Because if that's something that you're not up for, well, you really should get off the ride now. I wish they had that at more places in the world. You know, opportunities where you're not locked in and you can sort of just check out. Uh, opportunities to take stock, like at the backswing of one of those giant roller coasters that look like a good idea when you're at the bottom and your friends are going up on the thing. And just before they let you go to your certain death, it'd kind of be nice for some guy at the top to say, hey, would you like to get off now? <laughs> but they don't, really. It's too late. The thing's locked in. You can't shake it. Only one way down. So, would-be follower of Jesus, do you have what it takes? Now that you know what you're in for, is this what you really want? Or do you want to get off the ride now? Because if you do, Jesus says, don't, don't go there. Verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, then everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Imagine beginning a light rail project in the city and not having the money to finish it. Especially if there was no contingency to draw on. And so no unlimited coffers you can overspend with. And really, if you're just out of cash, you're out of cash and there's nothing more you could do. So all, this, all the disruption you've caused and all the grand plans, they, they come to nothing, don't they? Because when you can't pay for any more materials or the labor required, all the work grinds to a halt. And it'll be a joke. Good planning says, let's work out how much this is going to cost, when it's going to cost, and up front, if you, can't, if you can't afford it, don't start. Don't build. Verse 31, along the same vein. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, you might be able to win if they outnumber you two to one. You might be able to if you're some sort of uh, tactical genius or if you can manipulate the place you're fighting in to your advantage or you've got some other secret thing at your disposal. Maybe, maybe you're better trained or you've got better gear or you're all built like Nath Pratt or Ian back there. You, know, you, you could actually do it. But the point is, you're sitting down beforehand and assessing... The risk, aren't you? Before you commit your life and the life of all your people, you've got to figure out, can I win this? And if you figure out that you can't possibly win this, it's not even close, the only sensible thing to do is to surrender early and ask for terms of peace and to see if they'll offer you anything better than annihilation. You've got to know what this is going to cost you, Jesus is saying. And Jesus says to this crowd, following me is going to cost you everything. 
you may well be alienated from the rest of the world. Your purpose and your ambitions will be overtaken. It will cost you everything you are and everything you have if you're willing to pay that price. And you know what happens to his disciples. It costs them everything. Every one of the 12 disciples died for being a disciple of his. And the church continued to be persecuted even as it grew. I suspect the reason Jesus said these things was that there must have been people there, not just the disciples, but the crowd. There must have been people there who maybe all they were there for was to see a miracle. Or maybe they might not have any desperate need themselves, but they just wanted to see this uh, miracle worker do something amazing that they'd heard someone else say he could do. Maybe there were some people there who heard a little bit about Jesus and they were trying to work out if there was actually any, cre- any credibility to him, if he was actually the saviour they needed. Uh, but they hadn't figured out yet, so they're still trying to listen and, and follow along to see if... Now, Jesus wants them to be perfectly clear on what discipleship will mean for them. Maybe there were some, you could imagine, who were there who'd been used to playing the religion game. They were in that sort of part of the world where most people believed in something. And maybe they wanted to play the game with Jesus like they did with all the other so-called gods, where you pay homage to a high power in return for them doing something for you. But really, if you're doing that, then it's really about you and what you want, isn't it? Not about honouring and actually following this, this God. You're not living for Jesus if you treat him like that. You're using him. What Jesus calls for here, what he makes clear here, is he wants first place in your heart, where he is absolute Lord and God, as well as Saviour. We have quite a large number of children here on a Sunday morning these days. Um, If you've ever been part of our morning service, and there's a point in the service uh, most weeks when uh, school's on, at least, where we send the kids upstairs to go to their program. They, they join us for the start, and then the service leader will say, you know, now's the time for your programs, and go upstairs. And it's a bit surreal standing from the front issuing that order, because as soon as you say that, the whole room just sort of buzzes with excitement. It's 30, not 30, 50 or 60 now, no, little bodies get up, sometimes with their parents, uh, and all the helpers and all the leaders, and it seems like your whole congregation has just left you, and you're left with like the, the two or three watching everyone else go. We bring our kids to church because duty of care says you can't leave them at home, uh, but also we hope that they'll also get exposed to God here at some point. That through his word and through, as they interact with other Christian people, that they'd get to participate in real Christian community. And the kids growing up in our church and part of the crowd, for years here, they, they will come week after week having no real choice because mum and dad will drag them here whether they want to be part of this crowd of people following Jesus or not. And sooner or later, they're going to have to decide for themselves, like all of us have to decide for ourselves, whether they're going to pay that cost, whether they want to actually count that cost and own and commit to this faith that they've been brought up on. For many of you, that's your story. A younger version of you might have made a decision like that to follow Jesus many moons ago. You committed your life to following him with a full heart and with absolute conviction. And I wonder, how is that going for you today? 
after all that's happened, and with all that's gone on around you, what's happening all now, are you just as passionate tonight to give everything you've got to following Jesus as you were at the beginning? Because verse 34, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Imagine you're sitting there at a restaurant, having a good time, and your food comes. It's an Italian joint, and so the wait staff come over, and they always offer you some cracked pepper and some salt. And they say, would you like to try the pepper? And you say, mm, that'd be nice. They crack a little bit of pepper on. And then they uh, offer you this other thing. They say, well, this is a second special shaker. And you say, well, what is it? And they're like, well, it's pretty special. It's a house blend. We do it ourselves. The label on it says salt, but it doesn't actually taste like anything. Would you like some? And you would say, No. Because what's the point of someone grinding some little flecks of tasteless whatever it is on your food? You know, how long is it be sitting there for? The whole point of being a Christian is that you're following Jesus. And it's an all of life thing. The reason why we baptize people and we get their whole body wet in our church is because it's such a good symbol of every single part of you dying to yourself thoroughly soaked and committed to living a whole new life for him when you come up. Do come and talk to me over supper if uh, you're committed to following Jesus but you haven't been baptized. We got plans for a couple of people who talked to me already about being baptized early next year and so always happy for you to join us and uh, express your faith that way. But in closing, just a word to those here this evening who aren't following Jesus. Hopefully, Uh, You've heard the simple point that Jesus is making, how he expects those following him to be all in, and his warning that it's going to cost them everything, and he's asking them to think about whether they can afford that. Hopefully you've heard all that this evening. And the big question is, why? Why would anybody want to do that? What is the draw card? People would pay such a high price. And our passage this evening doesn't answer that question. Jesus doesn't go there, but actually all the carols we've been singing tonight do. And all the Christians sitting around you, would you ask them this evening before you leave, ask them why they've committed themselves to following this Jesus. Get them to tell you why they think he's worth it, why they've decided to commit their lives to following him. And hopefully that'll be a good exercise for you and and for them.